It's great to be here. I want to thank Michelle and the Luce Institute again for having me. It's always great to be behind a Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute podium. And as I mentioned earlier, I benefited greatly from my affiliation with the Luce Institute when I was in college. And so it is always inspiring for me to meet today's college students and high school students who are part of the Luce Policies Network. And I am always impressed by how poised and articulate and smart all these young ladies like you guys are. And, and, um, and that's something that's been quite an inspiration for me. Um, quite some years ago, one of my uh, former mentors said to me that your opponents make you better and your friends give you courage. And I think the Luce Institute is one of those organizations that give conservative and libertarian young women on college campuses and high school campuses a lot of courage. And that courage is something that is hard to find from, um, from across the country. When I was about your age, I had a lot of male friends, and I think throughout my life I've always had more male friends than female friends. And it used to be because I was kind of a tomboy when I was growing up, but it was also because I think with some of the areas I worked on, it just naturally had more men. And for a very long time, I was interested in issues. I was interested in defending conservatism when I was in college. Like in your, at your age, I was very interested in studying issues of war and peace. I was interested in defending conservatism. And for a very long time, it didn't really matter to me whether I had more female friends or not. I didn't really give it that much thought. But as I've gotten older and as I've kind of come back to conferences like these, um, and as I've had to wrestle with the fact that oftentimes in the workplace, particularly at liberal um, employers, some of the nastiest people to other women are actually women themselves. And that as you get older, that a lot of the questions you wrestle with, whether it's sexual harassment at the workplace, whether it's family, whether it's your career choices, that the voices of other women matter a lot and that men and women simply bond very differently. And the idea of what it means to be a modern woman matter quite a bit. And different people have different ideas. But, um, but having a group like this, having a network like this is tremendously helpful and having the guidance of somebody like Michelle, um, like Margie, and, um, you know, and having read the work of Veronique de Rudy over the years, um, it is something, all of those things have given me a lot of courage over the years, and it is something for which I am extremely grateful, and I am so happy that you guys now are part of this network, and I certainly look forward to great things from all of you. Um, now, one of the reasons why it is so inspirational for me to see young people like you is that you guys continue to actually carry out the fight on college campuses, particularly when the issues are not even popular um, and when it comes at great cost to you guys, whether it's socially or sometimes even academically. Uh, now, immigration is one of those issues where conservatives need to stand strong, even if it is unpopular to do so. In the toxicity of our current political discourse, you are often labeled a racist and a xenophobe if 
You want something that many of us consider to be very reasonable. For instance, if you want stronger border security, if you don't believe in randomly and gratuitously granting amnesty to illegal immigrants, if you want to reduce or reform legal immigration, oftentimes the label that will be given to you is racist or xenophobe. Many politicians and commentators, including plenty of people on the right, have become so wrapped up in their own rhetoric about compassion, and sometimes so wrapped up in their own vanity that they've forgotten that their first responsibility is to the American people. And they forget that American citizens, in fact, are the ones who get to decide who enter this land and who get to stay in this land. They forget that coming to the United States is not a right, and it certainly is not an entitlement. But the entitlement mentality is something that pervades our immigration debate, it is something that pervades our political debate in general. And so today I wanna to just talk about some major misconceptions that are quite common um, and to remind everybody that there are answers and that we should not be afraid to stand up for, for believing that coming to the United States is not an entitlement. So a lot of times you will find that people who are proponents of amnesty regularly conflate the idea of legal versus illegal immigration. The left are not the only people who do this, as I said earlier. Plenty of people on the right do that as well. Just read the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, which is actually very conservative. Um, oddly enough, um, earlier last year, the New York Times, of all places, did a very compelling piece profiling various, about four legal immigrants who oppose illegal immigration. And it summed up a lot of the frustrations um, that they had with the pro-amnesty rhetoric and policies of the country. And in fact, I believe all four of those immigrants were minorities and they were actually Democrats. None of them were Trump supporters. And so I, I believe Michelle told me that this article is now posted on the website of the Luce Institute. But I think the frustration, one of the, one group of people that's probably most articulate in opposing illegal immigration is in fact the legal immigrants. And the reason for that is we have a legal immigration process in place, numerous individuals from around the world follow it out of respect for this country, for this country's rule of law. And they make huge sacrifices. They incur heavy financial cost, they jump through a lot of bureaucratic hurdles, and they wait in line. Um, my family applied to immigrate to the US when I was just a kid, and, and this was, we, um, we were living in communist China at the time. And after about four years of waiting, we finally got to the front of the line. And we were awfully excited because it, we thought that, oh my goodness, we get to come to, we get to go to America now. But when we showed up at our appointment at the US consulate, the consulate told us that, well, hang on a second. We actually want some additional documentation from you. Um, we want, and they wanted my mother's proof of birth. Um, now, usually you ask for those kinds of things when someone gets in line and starts applying for immigration. And when my mother for, and my father first applied on behalf of our family, she made it very clear to the consular that she didn't have a birth certificate. And it's because she's, she was born in this town in Indonesia. Um, and 
in the chaos and poverty of the third world, oftentimes people don't have those kinds of documentations. But she made that disclosure, and the consulate accepted from her at, when she first applied for immigration whatever documentation that she was able to provide. And they said that was good enough. Now go home and wait in line. And by the time she was done waiting in line, the consulate said, ah, there was actually an oversight. We now need some documentation from you on this after all. And what did they want? They, want, so they said, well, if you don't have a birth certificate, then can you go get some affidavits or some sort of proof from, you know, statements from your friends and families, family members in that Indonesia town that, that you were born in, saying that, in fact, you were born there? Um, now, I don't think anybody my mother knew in that town knew what an affidavit was. But more importantly, she didn't know anybody in that town anymore. Um, her family left Indonesia and moved um, to China in part, in, in fact, it largely because they saw a certain amount of political persecution for Chinese, ethnic Chinese people coming. And some years after her family left Indonesia, um, there was a massacre of a large number of Chinese citizens. And so it was going to be very difficult for my mom to actually go and get an affidavit or a number of affidavits from people in Indonesia. But, but we tried to do that anyway. So we tried to actually go and get the documentation that the consulate asked for. And this went on and on and on. And it went on for about nine months. It was cumbersome and it was frustrating. And oftentimes I saw my mom coming home crying in the living room, um, believing that she might never, ever get to the US. This went on for nine months. Finally, the consulate relented. And they came up with an alternative arrangement. Um, and it was an easier arrangement. It required getting a whole bunch of affidavits from people outside of Indonesia. But in any case, it was an arrangement that worked for us. And once we complied, we were able to hop on a plane and come to the US. That is not the same as just walking over the border or overstaying a visa. Those are the two categories of people who, the, the two largest categories of people who are illegal immigrants in this country. We, and, and for my family, I, I think even though it was incredibly cumbersome for us to go through that legal immigration process, there are lots of other families, lots of other individuals who endure far more. Um, and they go through, sometimes people wait decades. I had an aunt who waited over 10 years for her application to be approved. And she passed away from cancer about a year before it was approved. And so when amnesty proponents talk about compassion, let's not forget about compassion for the law abiding. Let's not forget about compassion for those who respect America's legal process. Um, as you guys know, not too long ago, about a month or two ago, the mayor of Oakland, my former hometown, made it very clear that she was going to squarely stand in the way of the US federal government enforcing immigration laws. And so she squarely stood in the way and prevented um, ICE from actually carrying out some immigration raids successfully. And in fact, not only was she talking about compassion for, well, first of all, she said she didn't feel that 
that many illegals who were going to be arrested had sufficient criminal records. But the way she talked, she seemed to be saying that being in this country illegally is somehow not an illegal act and that the government has absolutely no right to enforce federal immigration laws against illegal immigrants unless they have committed crimes besides their immigration violations. Now this absurdity shows the brazen disregard that the mayor of Oakland has for America's rule of law. It is also a slap in the face for those of us who made sacrifices, jumped through bureaucratic hurdles, and waited in line to come to this country legally. Unfortunately, there are lots of politicians like the mayor of Oakland, uh, especially in states like California and other sanctuary states. Now, one concept that we hear a lot about in the immigration debate is amnesty for the dreamers because all kinds of people have a whole lot of compassion for the dreamers, even if they feel that they're not particularly sympathetic for adults who came to this country. Now, pro-amnesty types often talk about those who were brought to this country as children through no fault of their own and know of no other country besides the United States. I've always found that kind of rhetoric to be a bit jarring. And I, I think it, this is a point that doesn't get made very, free, very often. In the immigration experience, children are not just innocent bystanders of an illegal act. Rather, they are often the primary reasons for a family to leave one life to seek another in a foreign land. And they are the impetus for adults to work at some minimum wage jobs, to, to take legal risks, to, you know, to endure hard work. And, and oftentimes, the adults fight for a better future for their children. And it's very admirable, but let us not pretend that children, in fact, are just hanging around and they just happen to be a byproduct of these decisions. And by the way, let us also not forget that we are not talking about children who are, who are two or three or four who are hanging on the sleeves of their mother, mothers and fathers coming across the border or taking a plane to the US and overstaying their visas. Um, in the DACA regulation that came out, the reprieve that President Obama gave to these dreamers uh, when he was in office to be eligible for deferred action, in other words, to be eligible under the DACA program, a dreamer needed to, needs to be 16 or under when they arrived in this country. There's a big difference between a 16-year-old and a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Um, you're, you know, and I think some of you might actually be around that age for those of you who are in high school. Um, there are a lot of decisions you're capable of making on your own without your parents, even if there are plenty of decisions you still can't make legally. But I, I think there's a certain amount of dishonesty or a certain amount of, of intentional misleading in the, in the immigration debate. People are always talking about children who come here through no fault of their own. That's actually not, I, I think the number one, the children provide a certain amount of incentive for coming here illegally, but number two, some of these children actually are far older than you think they are. In fact, in one of the bills that went through Congress that 
one of the bills that were proposed in Congress um, in the latest round for immigration reform. Some of the senators, in fact, proposed that if someone came here um, when he's 18 or under, he would be eligible for something, you know, for deferred action and for legal status and ultimately a path to citizenship. When you're 18, you're eligible to, um, to do lots of different things. In fact, there are, uh, even when you're 16, there are, in, there are plenty of places in the U.S. where if you commit a crime that is serious enough, you can be tried as an adult. So uh, b before we sort of rush to give DREAMers amnesty, I think we need to be strengthening, not weakening, um, the incentives for legal immigration and we need to actually not, um, I think we need to not be so careless about this category of illegal immigrants. Now, I think there is in fact something special about this category of illegal immigrants. Uh, President Trump obviously has great fondness for them. He calls them the kids. He, his administration has proposed to offer not just legal status to them, but to offer a path to citizenship for them. And of course, in exchange, his administration wants wall funding and various reforms in legal immigration. But the question a lot of people ask is, why must these kids get citizenship? Is legal status not enough? I think legal status is a form of compassion for people who have broken our laws and come to our country illegally. Now, dreamers are in fact some of the most entitled advocates among illegal immigrants for illegal status as well as for citizenship. They are usually the ones who are right in your face telling you that they went to school here, they get scholarships here. Um, never mind that a number of those scholarships could have gone to American citizens and that oftentimes they will get right in your face and tell you that they deserve to stay here and they tell that to the New York Times, to the Washington Post and to liberal media all the time. Now, if a dreamer is willing to fight and die for America for ser by serving in the military, that is one thing. But if you are here getting an education which you might not have gotten in your home country, um, and particularly if you came from a, an impo uh, impoverished country in the third world, Getting a free education here is a privilege. Working here is a privilege. Living here is a privilege. There, none of that is anything that anybody is entitled to, and it doesn't matter if they call themselves a dreamer or not. There, are, there were various bills that went through Congress proposed by senators, by congressmen, um, that offered various kinds of solutions to the immigration debate to immigration reform um, in the latest go around, nothing passed. But I think these are concepts we need to keep in mind. I think we need to continue to keep in mind those issues that are important and I don't think we should just be deluded by the liberal media telling you who you should have compassion for and what you must do as a result of that. Now another concept that has come up quite a bit in recent months is, and, and also in part because of the presidency of Donald Trump, is the concept of chain migration. Uh, the president and various members of Congress have proposed reducing legal immigration in addition to being tough on illegal immigration. 
they want to abolish the extended family chain migration categories as well as the visa lottery. It's an interesting, it's quite an interesting area for me because I am actually a product of chain migration. Um, what the president and a lot of his allies on this issue would like is that they would like more people to come here with the kind of skills that America needs. They would like high skill laborers. They would like people who are willing to invest in the US economy because they believe that this is the kind of people who will propel us to success in the 21st century. Uh, currently, there are a lot of people who came to the US very much like me. They came on the basis of something called family reunification. My family left China because we wanted a better life, a life that we didn't think we could possibly get in China. And there was a lot of hard work and a lot of, um, a lot of hardship. There's no doubt about it. But when we came, my father applied through the immigration system and he applied to reunify with his brother. And when he was approved to do that, he brought his family with him, his wife, his son, and his daughter. And so our nuclear family came to the US through that process. Now, um, my grandmother came here and my grandfather came here through that process as well. Um, a number of my, brother, my father's other brothers came here through that same process. My grand, let me give you an example of my grandmother. When she came here, I believe she was in her 60s. And so in the beginning, she needed a job. She needed some income. And so while in her 60s, not speaking a whole lot of English, she would ride the bus. This was for one of the gigs that she had for over an hour to some unfamiliar neighborhood in some neighboring city to serve as a, a babysitter for a middle-class family. And oftentimes, the bus took her to all kinds of places that she just didn't know anything about. And I used to worry that, well, what if the bus broke down? What would she do? She barely spoke any English. And here, there she was, traveling long distance, long distances to just earn a few bucks. She worked very hard, and the families that she had worked for all loved her. When her all, however, when she was old enough and when all her papers were in order, she went on Medicaid. Um, in California, that particular program is called Medi-Cal, and it is a federal program distributed through the states that allows people who are 65 and older, and also it, is, it benefits people who are poor, and it gives them federal subsidies. And so when my grandmother was old enough, she went on Medicaid. She received medical um, subsidies, or she received subsidies from the federal government for her medical care, for her housing arrangement, and also as sort of a stipend for her, for her living. However hard my grandmother worked when she got here, and however you know, troubling it was for me that in her, uh, when she was older, that she had to sort of travel through perhaps some unsafe neighborhoods, there was no way that the taxes she paid in, to the federal government or the state government when she was working could have outweighed the federal subsidies that ultimately went to her care um, when she got older. And she lived until she was in her early 80s. That was uh, about 15, a little less than 20 years of receiving federal government subsidies as well as state government subsidies. Um, there are a lot of immigrant families who 
share that story. There are a lot of immigrants who come here who have sons and daughters who go to prestigious colleges, who do magnificent things, who become astronauts. But if you ask them, and if they are honest about it, if they came here on chain migration, there will be many members of that family who do not have high school degrees, who do not have college degrees, who, in fact, um, after not too many years of working, or even if they had worked a lifetime very hard at jobs that they were very proud of, that, in fact, received would receive federal government subsidies once they get older or once they're below the poverty line, what have you. These stories are very common. Um, they don't usually get told in the press. A study by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine reported, um, this was a 2016 study, um, and the study reported that on average, a non-elderly adult immigrant without a high school degree will cost U.S. taxpayers $231,000, um, and this cost, the $231,000, takes into account the government benefits that this immigrant would receive minus the taxes that he will pay over a lifetime. I think that's something we need to be a lot more honest about. If Americans decide that they are okay paying the cost in exchange for, there are obviously a lot of upsides to legal immigration. They bring a certain amount of dynamism to our economy. They bring a can-do spirit and they bring something that I think often immigrants from poor countries bring, which is that they're willing to take risks um, far more so than people who have a lot to lose. When you have very little to lose, you are far more willing to take all kinds of risks. Um, th those are some of the, the upsides. But I think oftentimes it is unclear if Americans are aware of the price they're paying for people who come here to enrich our economy, to enrich our social fabric. And there are other costs if the Im immigrants are not assimilating or if amnesty for illegal immigrants is just a cynical ploy by politicians to buy votes for ge future generations. I think those are all costs we need to think a lot more about. In the last elect presidential election in 2016, we heard a lot about sovereignty, even if we didn't hear that particular word. It's a word that means we get to decide. The American people, a democratically elected government, gets to decide. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump used to talk incessantly about sovereignty, even though he never used that word. The president doesn't really use words like that. But um, and, and, and I, I don't mean that necessarily in a disparaging way because the language he used was actually probably a lot more effective. I think it, in fact, was a lot more effective. And he liked, liked to say and still likes to say that we either have a country or we don't. And voters understood that what he was talking about was uncontrollable illegal immigration from the border. Um, he was talking about illegal immigrants who believed that they were entitled to remain in the United States even if the law said otherwise. And he was talking about politicians from both parties, and both parties are as guilty about this as the other. And, and there are plenty of politicians who just cower before identity politics, who are afraid of being, a label, being labeled a racist. And, in, you know, and while they are so eager to talk about compassion for this group and that group, they are afraid to offer viable solutions. Um, just look at the mayor of Oakland. She's very proud of herself right now. 
And so in, in unmistakable terms, the president, in many ways, has been defending America's sovereign right to control its borders, to control who enters its land. And the White House reform priorities have included everything from building a wall to defunding sanctuary cities to reducing the population of unaccompanied illegal minors to punishing people who stay overstay their visas here um, and to, you know, to other border security measures. Ultimately, this is a program about letting the American people decide. These are complicated issues and it is often easy to sort of add on overheated rhetoric, but I think conservatives do nobody a service when they cower before identity politics, when they cower before leftist rhetoric. And it is one thing for them to want open borders, it is one thing for them to advocate for it, but it is quite another to pretend that somehow it is unconservative for other people to reject that idea and conservatives should not be afraid to reject that idea altogether. Ultimately, citizenship and even legal status in this country is something that needs to be earned. It should not be doled out like a government subsidy because it is far too precious and we should never forget that. And I'm happy to take any questions you guys have. So there's a question in the back. Hi, thank you. Um, so uh, I agree with you that we should um, strengthen incentives for legal immigration reform um, and that we should have compassion for law-abiding immigrants and take that into account um, when we determine policies for illegal immigrants. Um, uh, I was interested in your discussion about legal status versus citizenship. Um, if you could explain sort of the differences between the two, um, and I think that probably relates to some of the privileges you mentioned about being a citizen. Um, uh, but specifically, um, so that's, that's sort of one question. And then another question is, um, you talked about how uh, DACA eligibility involves people who are 16 or under, um, and you mentioned there are pretty vast differences between you know somebody who's two years old and somebody who's at an age where they could be making you know substantive de decisions according to the law. Um, how do we make sure? Like I think you've sort of hinted at this, but sort of a desire to protect people who are you know the two-year-olds clinging to their mothers crossing the border, whatever, um, and have it like a very different. How do we recognize sort of the difference in their situation? Um, and how, like, what sort of policy are you advocating to make sure those are those people are protected? Um, and like you mentioned, um, like wanting to uh, make sure like certain other reforms are in place first um, before kind of addressing that. But um, like before, yeah. Um, but yeah, if you could expand on that, yeah, I yeah, don't sure. remember exactly all what you said. Um, yeah. But um, I, I just didn't really find super compelling the argument about how like children are often the impetus for immigration as a good reason to neglect to sort of consider children who are like two years old or whatever in that sort of situation. Okay, well thank you. Thank you for both of those questions. Uh, I, so under DACA requirements, um, the applicant needs to be 16 and under um, when they entered the United States and I believe when they apply they need to be no older than 
30. Um, so because obviously people enter and then they stay here for a certain amount of time and by the time they, they apply um, for the first time, you know, they, they could be well over 16. Um, I, I think I would go back to an, to an analogy that a conservative um, immigration expert once um, used and his name is Mark Krikorian and, and he does a lot of work on this issue and he said, in, in a way, you know, when we talk about children who came here through no fault of their own and hence they ought to get amnesty, it's a little bit odd, right? Because children usually do think, there are a lot of things that happen to children that are no fault of their own and the, and the analogy he offered was that if, a, if parents don't, don't bother to pay their mortgage and their house gets foreclosed on, it's no fault of their children but the children still don't get to stay in that house. And so it's a little bit odd that somehow you're talking about a huge group of children and just because they supposedly didn't do anything um, or supposedly didn't make a decision, then somehow they ought to get a reward and the reward would be either legal status or, or citizenship. Um, you know, in reality and in life, oftentimes things just don't work that way. Another, um, um, pro-legal immigration um, activist in, um, um, in a community in the D.C. area also said something to, to, um, to a local media station that I thought was really interesting because people often complain that, oh my gosh, if you, um, you might end up breaking up families if you are tough on legal, if you're tough on illegal immigration and if you take measures against the parents who came here. But that also oftentimes happens elsewhere in life too. So let's say a single mother commits a crime. She's stealing drugs or, or she commits a murder and she goes to jail. You're breaking up her family too because she won't be taking care of her children anymore. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't go to jail. It's just that in life there are often very terrible things that happen. And so in the immigration debate, what's really strange to me is that oftentimes it almost seems like all the responsibilities that people need to take elsewhere in life or the, all the hardships that people normally need to own up to don't seem to matter in this debate. Now, to address your, your question um, about um, legal status versus citizenship, legal status I, it just means that you get to stay here legally. You don't get deported if the authorities find you and fi find out that you are here illegally. Uh, a pathway to citizenship means that, in fact, there are ways where through that, you know, through that legal status, you have a special path for obtaining citizenship. Um, so I'll give you an example. For instance, Representative Goodlatte had a bill in front of Congress um, just if you, you know, um, when we had this debate a few months ago. And in his bill, it did not offer a special pathway to citizenship. If you are an illegal immigrant here and you want citizenship, there are existing ways that people can sometimes do that. For instance, illegal immigrants would get married to, to a citizen and that's one path way for it. Um, there are also, and if you're an illegal immigrant and you leave the country and apply, that's another, to become a citizen of this country or become a legal immigrant, that's another way. But there are legislative proposals that do not provide special paths for citizenship. And I think the reason why people want to do it that way or proponents of, of strict border controls want to do it that way is that if it is so easy for people to come here illegally to obtain citizenship, to vote, to obtain other benefits of citizenship, then you are not deterring bad behavior and you're not 
preventing future bad behavior. Um, where, whereas if you give somebody legal status, I think it is one way to offer a compassionate solution because as we all know, there are many illegal immigrants who have been here for many years. Currently, we say that the country has approximately 11 million illegal immigrants. Um, you know, I think the number most likely is larger than that, and, and it is not feasible to deport all of them, and most likely they're not going to all self-deport either. And so one possible way of doing something compassionate is to offer them legal status, renewable every three years, for instance, and that allows them to actually live a normal life, but that also takes away the incentive of rewarding any bad behavior. Um, regarding the DACA question, I point out that a lot of these DACA recipients didn't actually come here when they were two or three or four and that, you know, they could be up to 16 when they showed up in this country, mainly to just sort of clarify for people, allow a way for people to think about this issue that because oftentimes it really is kind of tear-jerking when you listen to the plight of these illegal immigrants who came here as dreamers and then, oh my goodness, they're now, you know, they've now got a 4.2 GPA at some, at Yale, at Harvard, you know, or wherever, um, and that they came here through no fault of their own. But I, I think it is important to point out that when we envision who actually belongs to this population um, and who we're actually giving DACA benefits to, it is helpful to, real, to actually remind ourselves that you can be 16 and under when you entered this land, and there is, in fact, a difference. And um, right now, I don't think there's anybody making any big push for legislative proposals that say you have to be 10 years old or under when you, you know, when you showed up here illegally. But, but it's a concept that I think people need to think about, and I think it is very easy often to fall into the, the trap of the fake news media when they just say, we need, you know, if you're not compassionate toward the dreamers, then you must be this awful bigoted person. Um, for public policy questions, I think we just need to ask much harder questions and we need to face up to reality um, and be a lot tougher on all of these issues than we currently are. Yes, we have time for one more question. Hello, thank you for speaking today. My name is Alyssa Toth and I go to Ave Maria University in Naples, Florida. Um, my question is related to DACA. Um, so recently Trump had tweeted that DACA is dead and um, related that to how Democrats um, don't act and they don't care. Um, and, but there seems to be inconsistency. In the first three months of this year, um, over 55,000 applications have been approved um, by the Trump administration and by the government of either renewal of uh, DACA or like new applicants. Um, so how should we feel as conservative women? What stance should we take on this, um, given that there seems to be inconsistency within our own elected president in our government? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, Trump's own views on the DACA issue are pretty f conflicted. So, for instance, on the campaign trail, he said to everybody that he was not going to offer amnesty. And but you know, but then, but then what he's also gone around doing is to talk about how much compassion he's got for these ki kids, and he likes to call them kids. And he says he's got a place in his heart for, for these kids. And, and I think one of the interesting things about the president is that he often has conflicting impulses. Um, that's the case not just on the immigration issue. Uh, it's the case on foreign policy. It's the case on, on a lot of other things. I think overall, um, when you evaluate a president um, and when you evaluate policymakers in 
general, you kind of have to look at the big picture and look at the the, the good things they do, as well as look at the, their failures and living up to their promises. I think overall, his Department of Homeland Security has done a very good job. Um, illegal uh, immigration rates were down significantly, in part just because of Trump's rhetoric. It's amazing how much just presidential rhetoric does to deter illegal immigration across the border. Um, his attorney general has been very tough on um, on holding sanctuary states accountable and on holding sanctuary cities accountable. Uh, Attorney General Sessions, for instance, now is suing the state of California. Um, I think with the DACA issue, the president's hands in some ways are tied also by the courts, um, as you pro probably already know. Um, um, you know, that what he wanted to do in order uh, to essentially just stop the DACA program altogether, that's now on hold because of the courts. And so it's a complicated issue, and I think there are various areas where, um, I, where I wish the president had been tougher, and I think a number of his supporters were a bit disappointed that when he proposed some of his immigration priorities and when he talked about the DREAMers, that not only did he offer path to citizenship for these dreamers, he massively increased the number of people who would be eligible, and that it wasn't just people who were registered through the current DACA program, but you know, the at one point, I think it's 1.8 million people who are here who are not, you know, and that includes people who are not um, registered in that in the DACA program, but who also belong in the dreamers program, um, dreamers category, and I think. Um, uh, these are issues you just have to, you have to wrestle with, and, and it's important to continue to advocate for um, for the for holding the president accountable. To continue to remind the president that he made promises to his supporters, and his supporters counted, or in fact, are continuing to count on him to make good on those promises. Um, and but unfortunately, you know, I think with public policy advocacy, you don't always get what you want, and politicians oftentimes don't keep their promises. Um, but I think overall on immigration, I, I think overall this president has. Um, delivered to something that is very important is a paradigm shift on how we see this issue, how we enforce our laws, and 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 how to approach reform of the legal immigration system in addition to um, in addition to deterring illegal immigration. And so all of those things I think are positives. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to talk to you all.